You can meet and hear Mark and Molly Hemingway, Robert George, Albert Moeller, Brian Wolfmiller, Hans Feeney, and Will Whedon at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 12th and 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Why should cross and trial That's the hymn, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? Well, there's an answer to that question, because both are gifts of God. Paul Gerhardt wrote that hymn from a pastoral perspective, one of the towering theologians of the Lutheran Church. We're going to be talking a little bit about that hymn in the due course of our conversation as we look forward to Sunday morning, where that hymn will be the hymn of the day. This Sunday, we're going to encounter two miracles from Jesus, and he's going to talk again about faith course it's all about faith but of course all of this also fits within the epiphany season welcome back to issues etc we're coming to you from the annual symposia at concordia theological seminary in fort wayne indiana pastor david peterson joins us we're going to be looking forward to sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary he is pastor of redeemer lutheran church in fort wayne indiana and departmental editor of godestines the journal of lutheran liturgy david welcome back thanks tad these two miracles that we're going to encounter in the gospel reading in matthew chapter 8 you say that they're about sinners and Gentiles coming to the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. What do you mean? Well, that's right. Well, the first one's a leper. So he's really is kind of the archetypical sinner. He's unclean. He needs to be cleansed. And then the centurion is not of Israel. And yet he recognizes the kingdom of God in Christ. And both of them are welcomed by Jesus. That's a strong epiphany theme, isn't it? The ingathering of the Gentiles. That's right. It starts really for us with the coming of the Magi from the East, who are also, of course, not of Israel, but are Gentiles. And we're going to see that throughout the propers today, not only in the gospel, but in the Psalms that are used and so forth, this idea that's always been God's intention and plan to call all peoples, all nations, including Gentiles, including sinners, to himself. This gospel reading begins with um, when he came down from the mountain, what was he doing previously on the mountain? Well, that's the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount, which goes on from Matthew 5 through, through Matthew 7. And, and really, it's kind of he's teaching there, and now he comes down and he's acting. And it's a series of miracles, and these are the first two. So why is that context... I mean, Matthew had to put something after the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> but why is that context important for us to note here? Well, there's a certain sense in which he's coming down from the mountains to be among the people. So when he was on the mountain, he's somewhat isolated. He's separated from the people. He's with the disciples, but uh, now he's actually with them. He's next to them. He's amongst them. Uh, not, uh, not isolated, not withdrawn, not distant. And really, he comes down from the mountain even as he came down from heaven uh, to be with us in order to save us. Matthew says, look, when he comes, once Jesus' foot hits 
uh, the valley floor, suddenly it's behold. Talk that's, about that. That's right. And I've told we've talked about this before, but that behold word is really a, an important signifier and we shouldn't rush over it. Here it's kind of a funny thing because it's behold, a leper came to him. So uh, this idea anyway is that there's, it's an emphatic drawing of our attention. Look here, pay attention, something significant or unexpected or something important is about to happen. Here, what's kind of funny is there's really two things. First of all, it's extraordinary, and yet, of course, it's also indicative of our Lord's compassion that he's going to touch and heal a leper, that he's not ashamed to be with the leper. But there's also here this idea that the leper himself is important to Jesus. So it sort of makes sense to us, I think, we say, behold, your king is coming. You know, behold, the quarterback is here, the MVP. But this is, behold, the leper. And that's really like, Behold, here's a homeless man who stinks, who's unkempt, who's a little scary, and he's coming, and you should revere him. Since we don't have a lot of lepers walking around nowadays, it's, in addition to all of that, the yuck factor, and the, the notion, at least among devout Jews, that here is a person who is not just ceremonially unclean, right. but probably unclean before God, too, in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. The rabbis all hold that the that leprosy is because of moral failure. So this is a person that is he he is ceremonially unclean according to the Levitical law, but he was all held at a popular level to be to deserve it. You know, it's a bit like reincarnation. I, I think reincarnation is the most horrific possible of all doctrines because anybody who's homeless deserves it. He was a dirtbag in the previous life. You know, there's no reason to be sympathetic if you believe or empathetic. Yeah. And and that's sort of like this. This guy well, he deserves it. He's a leper. What did he do? he must have done something horrible. So he draws near to Jesus. And Jesus, I guess maybe we should note, does not do what we would do or what any devout Jew probably would have done, back off. Right. He doesn't. In fact, he touches him. What would that have meant under the, under the rabbi's system of rules for you to touch a leper? Well, I'm not sure what the rabbi, I mean, the Bible would say for sure there, there is a contact with that kind of uncleanness would make Jesus himself ceremonially unclean. And he would have to go through a ritual purification like you would for, for all sorts of things. I'm not, I, know, I don't know what the rabbis uh, would have thought of it, but I can't imagine they would have liked it. He doesn't just come to Jesus, but he actually kneels before him. What should we note about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great word there, this word, uh, kneels. And then, of course, he also says, he does beseech the Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And uh, Jeff Gibbs, in his really nice commentary from Concordia Publishing House on Matthew, translates this word that the ESV translates as kneel as, quote, show reverence. Now, literally, this mean just this word means to lie down, face down on the ground, at prostrate. And usually, uh, most translators will just simply say it means worship. So at one point, it meant to lie down, prostrate, but now it's kind of a more general term, just means to be worship. Gibbs, however, makes a good point here that this guy is coming before Jesus for cleansing, and he's trusting that Jesus has some power but he's probably not really worshiping Jesus in the kind of the false Christian sense of the word. Rather, he just simply sees him as a, as a prophet. So he reveres him, but he doesn't quite get who he is, which I'm, we're not trying to be too hard on him here. Of course, this is like the disciples themselves. Whatever faith this leper has is relatively immature at this point and probably imprecise. I bring all that up because Gibbs' reasoning convinces me that we should not translate this as worship, and I'm glad that the ESV translated it as knelt down. 
But I like this knelt down better than Gibbs' suggestion of reverence because it does keep the physical character of the word, that is how reverence is shown. It's by an outward action. It's not just silent thinking, reverent thoughts in his mind. And I think that we could actually probably go one further and we could, we could really translate this simply as a leper came and threw himself down before Jesus. Uh, it, I mean, there's an, an awfully good chance that this actually is describing a physical reality of what the leper did. But in any case, I have a suspicion that we should probably never translate this word actually as worship because it, uh, it seems to always refer to a physical act of worship, kneeling or prostration. And I think that in modern English, really, the word worship is just kind of too mousy and too ephemeral. So anyway, he comes, he worships him, he reverences him. So, so the picture, and all the farther Matthew's willing to take us with that word is, like you said, he throws himself on the ground before Jesus. And when we hear that word worship, what you're saying here and cautioning us about is that immediately in our modern English way of thinking about it, directs us away from his physical act and toward like what he was thinking right. or what was the condition of his heart. Exactly. Right. Okay. Right. I think that's exactly right. What, what's he, how's he feeling in his heart? He's feeling worshipful. And I, I mean, I'm sure he is feeling worshipful in his heart, but it has an outward expression. Now, the, the leper raises the issue of Jesus's willingness to perform this healing, and Jesus doesn't let that pass by either, does he? No. In fact, he picks up. So the leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, reaching out, touching him, says, I will. And uh, so this is first place. There's this interesting way that it, it's laid out here with the participles that, that is uh, an indicator of time. So it's as he's saying, I will be clean. And it's clear grammatically that he then touches the leper before he's cleansed. Attendant action. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So while he is speaking, he is performing. Correct. Yeah. And I'm, the only reason we're, I'm sort of bringing this up is because he doesn't clean him and then touch him. He touches him while he's still unclean, and, and, and that's part of the cleansing, the touching, and, of course, the speaking. So he renders himself ceremonially unclean, and that's part of his compassion, of course. It's an act of kindness. Nobody else, This guy wasn't getting any physical touch from anybody. And, of course, also, he had healed ten lepers when they came and asked for mercy with, with just his word. But this guy, he touches. There's something here, too, about... It's, a, it's kind of a fascinating if you take all of the miracles of Jesus and you try to systematize and say, how does he do it? He never does it the same way twice, or almost, you know. And I, I suspect that's to keep us from superstition, that we wouldn't try to recreate it. But in any case, he touches this guy probably because that's what's best for this guy, what this guy needs. And he does it in order to take on the man's uncleanness. There is a transfer that takes place here. And it's very much like holy baptism. When Jesus is baptized in the, Gordon, the, the Jordan River, he is getting baptized in our dirty bath water, right? Not in nice, clean, sparkling water, and he steps out clean. Baptism doesn't clean Jesus. It infects him. John pours water on Jesus that leaves behind a filthy scum that he's not allowed to wash off. He's, he's, he's dipped in dirty water, water, dirty water poured over him. Here in the same way, normally, if an unclean person touches a clean person, now they're both unclean. They, they, share, they share it. it. Yeah. Right. Here, of course, actually Jesus takes it from him, right? He leaves, he leaves the man clean. So there's this transfer. It passes from the leper to Jesus. And that's why this language of will, I think, is so important. Because the Lord is willing, uh, deliberately, consciously, to switch places with the man, even as he will be willing to switch places with Barabbas and, of course, with all of us. So uh, if, if I had a cold and we had this conversation <laughs> and then you went home and said, Oh, Jackie, I'm not feeling so good. Wilkin had a cold. I think he gave it to me. 
I've shared my cold with you, but it would really be something if I had a cold and you went home and said, Jackie, I'm not feeling so good. I think Wilkin gave me his cold and you called me and said, you gave me a cold. And I said, yeah, I don't have it anymore. Right. I gave it to you. <laughs> so that's what's happening. Here. That's what's happening here. Is there an exchange the other direction then? If Jesus takes his uncleanness, does he, does he give something from himself to the leper. Yeah, of course, right. He's giving what? He's giving his cleanliness, his holiness, his righteousness. Uh, and, and he's giving everything that he has. I mean, that's the happy exchange. And, and this is just one place, of course, where we see it physically embodied. But, but he doesn't just get soundness of body. Jesus never just heals a person in his body. Uh, this, this is always related to faith. You say it comes at a cost, this healing for Jesus. Yeah, and I think we forget that. I think that it, we have this Jesus has endless power according to his divinity, so he can just do whatever he wants. So, you know, he can heal anybody and there's no cost is, is kind of the way we think about it, I think. And there's a sense in which, of course, that's true. Uh, you know, he's not limited. He doesn't have a, a certain amount of healing to give. But nonetheless, he became a man in order to be subjected to the law for us. And that means that he doesn't float about or turn into a bird or do weird magic stuff, right? But he has subjected himself to the natural law. That means he's subjected himself to gravity, to physics, to biology, as it were. And he does this because the natural law is his law. So it's good. He's the one that set the laws of nature, of creation into place. And so also he subjected himself to the mosaic law. And that means that he's going to pay the price that justice demands, that he, he doesn't just heal and then there's there, nothing, there has to be, somebody has to pay for this. So even the Mosaic Law was really clear. I think we've talked about it. Someone with leprosy had to go through, it's about a month yeah. of a combination of checkups with, <laughs> with the priests and sacrifices. Lives were being, and offerings, things were being given over. Blood was being shed in the course of this month-long verification that one was ceremonially clean again it, it's bigger than just bring a sheep right bring some money to the priest what's jesus going to pay there yeah it's i mean and of course there the idea is the leper has been healed he's still ceremonially unclean so so he's going through a ritual purification so that he can be rejoined to his family and to the community and of course what jesus is going to pay is going to be more than just simply for the ritual cleansing of this guy through his blood, through his death, but he's actually going to pay for the healing. I mean, he's paying everything. And of course, we've talked about this too, that he really is all aspects of the temple. I mean, he's the priest, he's the victim, he's the building, he's the incense, he's everything. And so uh, in, in some ways, the ritual purification is, is kind of the smallest piece of it, but at the same time, it's some ways the most significant because that's what reintegrates him back to his family. I think it's, I think it's you that have has observed this before in our conversations, that when Jesus performs a miracle or a healing or any of these things, these things are obligating him yeah. to go to the cross. He, he, he's not going to forgive your sins <laughs> and then not go to the cross. He, right. he is setting himself under the further obligation to finish the work. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Because the point is, again, see, he can't just let you off the hook. All right, let's forget about it. Let's pretend it never happened. Right? That's not forgiveness. The, the forgiveness that Christ wins for us is a costly forgiveness by satisfying the law, fulfilling the law in our place. And that means not only does he have to keep the law in sense of not sinning, not doing anything that the, that the law forbids, doing everything that the law commands, but also that he has to suffer everything that the law requires of those who break it. And we've we got to be a little bit careful how we speak about this, but there is a certain sense in which Jesus himself, you, you could view this as Jesus taking on this ritual uncleanliness and touching this leper is almost a breaking of the law that he is now going to have to pay for as he pays for all of the break. It's not a moral breaking of the law. So we've got to be a little careful how we talk about it. But do but, you see what I mean? Yes. I mean, what he's doing is he's saying this has to be atoned for. Yeah. And he's willing to take it on himself. Uh, also, and I think you mentioned this briefly just a moment ago, this demonstrates kind of quintessentially that Jesus isn't about putting on a show, <laughs> a, a spectacle of his power. Talk about that. That's right. And uh, I mean, here again, he, he's actually moved by mercy. He's moved by the need of this fellow who is in front of him who asks to be cleansed. And uh, so, I mean, and then the other kind of funny thing with this, which is really kind of surprising in a way, is that like he does with the 10 lepers, he tells them, uh, go, he tells them, go to the temple. But he tells this guy, don't tell anybody about this, but go to the temple, fulfill the law, get yourself declared healed and cleansed so you can rejoin the community. And this is really, this is really another act of compassion because Jesus is again taking the burden off this guy because well, you know what happens to Lazarus, right? He, he, they make him into a spectacle and he becomes a drawing card or a lightning rod that they want to kill him. And he is sparing this guy the, that he might become a martyr uh, in that sense because he didn't come to fulfill, again, he didn't come to abolish the law. He loves the law. He loves the Mosaic law. He loves the temple. It's his will. It's the way that he brings people back to himself. But he did come to fulfill it. And so he's fulfilling it for this guy and he sends him back into it, right? So as you're saying, you know, it's, it's not a spectacle. That's right. It is a manifestation, an, an epiphany or a revealing of our Lord's power. But it's important to note that his power always acts for the sake of mercy. And I think that's what you're getting at in compassion, that and this probably then also relates to the prohibition. So the prohibition is a relief of the guy because he, he can rejoin his family in the normal way and not become a martyr. But it's also probably prohibited. He doesn't want to tell people about it because he doesn't want people to get caught up in the wrong stuff. Because people like miracles. People don't like teaching that much. And they certainly don't like Jesus dying. So he, he, his mission is to heal the sick eventually. But he's going to heal the sick by going to the cross, by making himself a ransom, by rising from the dead. So the prohibition might be related to that as well. You have a brief quote before we go to the break, from, uh, again from Gibbs in this commentary, about how this relates to the hiddenness of the kingdom. Yes, he writes, The gracious rule of God in Jesus comes truly and yet in hiddenness. The final consummation of that reign is not yet. In that sense, Jesus' miracles are signs and anticipations of the last day. After Christ returns in glory, all the dead will be raised bodily. Unbelievers and Satan will be cast into eternal life, I should say eternal fire, in the new creation. And the restoration of all things will be fully accomplished. And then Gibbs goes on to say, helpfully, to talk about how we live in this time when the times are overlapping, the in-between time, between the resurrection and the last day. At the time of the healing of the leper, 
the Lord was focused on getting to the cross, and if he hadn't done that, as you said, then the healing of the leper would have only been temporary. But, but there is an eschatological reality to these miracles that Jesus did come for the healing of all lepers and of all, all cancer patients and so forth, and that's going to be fulfilled finally on the last day. Pastor David Peterson is our guest on this Wednesday, January the 18th, broadcasting from the Symposium of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. We'll talk about the other part of the gospel reading, part B, so to speak, right after this. What is The Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's a monthly magazine on faith and life, theology and culture that helps readers interpret the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Filled with expert insights, good writing, and inspiring stories, it also provides essential church information for LCMS members. What is The Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's the flagship periodical of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and it has been for more than a century. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe today. Lutheran Talk. We have an ecumenical responsibility to hold forth the scriptures and to bear witness to grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere in 2020 with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many Lutheran pastors outside of the U.S. receive little or no seminary education. Luther Academy provides theological triage through conferences, books, and journals. Help support Luther Academy by making a tax-deductible donation at lutheracademy.com or call 260-452-2211. Serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Luther Academy, 260-452-2211 or lutheracademy.com. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Stanza three of the hymn, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, with Pastor David Peterson of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of God Esteems, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy, talking here about the reading for this coming Sunday in the Gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 8. So, there is the first miracle. Now we move on to the second one, which takes place in Capernaum. 
That's right. He goes to Capernaum and a centurion comes forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. It's very similar to the account in John 4 where Jesus heals the son of a royal official in Capernaum, probably somebody who worked for uh, Herod Antipas. But this is a different event, so don't get them confused. Uh, there, in John 4, the Lord refuses to go with the official and sends him with only a word. Here, the Lord offers to go and gets this confession of faith that also sends the man home, ultimately, in the same way, with just a word. But again, it's kind of related to that, that Jesus doesn't do the same thing twice, or in, doesn't do it in the same way. Some people might say this is the same thing we find in, in uh, Luke's gospel, and there's a little confusion over, is this a son? Is this a servant? Is this a child? What's going on there? Uh, the, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is the same event in Luke 7. Um, and uh, here, Matthew uses this word pice, which can be translated as boy or son. Um, and so that's part of, and then of course the Capernaum, or, or the royal official, that was a son. So that's where the confusion comes in. So it, because of Luke, we know that this is a servant. Pice is also a word for servant. So that's what it is. The leper comes uh, bowing down and the centurion comes appealing. Yeah, it's really great. And it's this, again, we've got this nice use of the participles that uh, even as before Jesus was speaking as he did this, here we've got him coming as he's beseeching or appealing. And I think that this is actually an indication already that the centurion's faith is superior to that of the lepers. So we're, we're not denigrating the leper, but the leper comes, he looks outwardly more pious in a way maybe, uh, because he came worshiping, kneeling, maybe prostrating himself, offering reverence. That's obviously appropriate. There's nothing wrong with what the leper did. But the centurion has a, a clearer understanding of who the Christ is. And so he comes beseeching because the centurion is a beggar, to put it in Luther terms. And this, of course, is the essence of faith, to expect good things from God and to ask him for things, to be dependent upon him, to trust that he will provide. And this, of course, will become more obvious in the account uh, that, that the centurion has this great faith, this receptive faith that wants Jesus to be Jesus to him. But we shouldn't miss this here, that he already comes appealing or beseeching. Because to rightly worship God and to honor his name is to call upon him in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give him thanks. But the first part for Luther is to call upon him in trouble, and I think that's the right order. We should also note here, because we forgot to do it earlier, that the leper and the centurion both do call Jesus Kyrie, uh, Lord, and it is in the vocative, so it's exactly the same as we say it, Kyrie eleison. Now, what's the nature of the trouble here for this young boy? Well, he says that he's lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And I think that it's really fair to say, I mean, honestly, that this servant is dying. Right? He's lying at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And in the ancient world, this is not a good thing. They don't have good medical care. They don't have penicillin, all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't a kind place for the disabled. So even now, of course, we know that when someone in his 80s or 90s falls and breaks a hip, we're all, uh-oh, this is the beginning of the end. It's far worse than to be paralyzed in the ancient world. It's almost unimaginable. Now, we aren't told what's the cause of this paralysis. It could have been a disease that was destroying him, or it could have been an accident, but it doesn't matter. If he's lying at home paralyzed, he's going to die. And again, I think the fact that the centurion understates the danger or simply leaves it implied is also evidence of his faith. He's not in a panic. 
Now, if you compare this to that royal official in Capernaum, he said, come down, lest my child die. And there's very much a sense of urgency, maybe of panic there. Here, the centurion simply states the condition. Uh, he doesn't even ask for anything. He just says he's lying at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And he trusts that the Lord will recognize the danger, he'll know what he needs, and he'll also provide a solution. Um, one, uh, again, we mentioned before Jeff Gibbs, his commentary suggests that perhaps Jesus asks to come and heal this man. Yeah, he translates this. So, so we have what the translation is, I will come and I will heal him. And that's just a very straightforward translation right out of the Greek text. But, but of course, just like in English, there's ways to uh, ask questions. And, and so Gibbs makes the argument that he thinks Jesus is saying, shall I come myself and heal him? But I'll, I have to admit, I couldn't really follow his argument. So I'm not doubting that it's possible. But I think that uh, either way, this is really, Jesus is making a promise with this future tense, I will heal him. Uh, and he's offering him something here that's quite magnificent. And uh, the what's even kind of more remarkable here is that the the centurion takes this whole conversation up to the next level yeah. with his response. I know he's like the Syrophoenician woman. He it, it's amazing because of course he begs off. Right? He says, "Oh, I'm not I'm not worthy, uh, but I understand authority because I t I'm a soldier and I tell one go and he goes and I tell another come come and I tell someone to do it and he does it." So he confesses that Jesus has the authority to command health in his servant from a distance. And also, he need not sully himself by coming into a Gentile house. So the other kind of really beautiful thing here is the match of faith and humility, right? That faith expresses itself in good works, and in some ways, the kind of quintessential good work is humility, even as the quintessential sin is pride. You say you've only found a couple places where Jesus has the response that he has to this centurion. Right. Well, yeah, it's because it says that Jesus marvels at this. So this word marvel is used in the in the Gospels quite a few. I can't remember, but maybe 12 or 14 times. And it's usually the crowds that are marveling at Jesus or the disciples are marveling at Jesus. One time Pilate marvels at Jesus. There's only twice that Jesus is recorded at, as marveling. And it's this time, both in Luke and in Matthew's account. And then he marvels in Mark 6 at unbelief. So... I mean, this is, this is an impressive moment that this guy causes Jesus to marvel. The uh, response then of Jesus is equally marvelous. He, he says, and you point out on oath, yeah. I tell you I have not found such great faith in Israel. Yeah, I mean, it's magnificent. I mean, so first of all, he marvels at the guy. Now he praises him. I mean, these are really things that are normally done toward God, not, not toward men by God. And he does, as you said, he starts out with this words translated truly. It, it's actually a transliterated word from Hebrew. It's amen. And it does have, when Jesus starts with amen, it does have a sense of an oath. So we really ought to stand in awe ourselves. We ought to marvel and spend some time contemplating what it was that was so great about this man's faith. I mean, it's, it's a singular event in the Gospels that this guy has such faith that it gets praised. Jesus does praise the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, but this is slightly higher and he marvels here. So anyway, what it is, of course, is that this centurion not only recognizes that Jesus has the power and authority to heal and that he has the desire to heal, 
But finally, he recognizes, I mean, this is the really kind of amazing thing, I think. He recognizes that this power to heal is exercised, and the will of God is exercised or enacted by his word. He says, go to the sickness, and the sickness goes. He says, come to health, and health comes. He works by speaking. Before Jesus actually heals him, he, he kind of <laughs> opines about the, the eschaton, the last day. I know. Yeah, it, it is almost like, a, well, what he does, of course, is he uses this guy as an example to shame the people who, who, who should have understood this best, right? Uh, that uh, those who had the scriptures and yet, so I mean, he's saying, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. What's wrong with you bums? Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the liturgical connections. These words and especially these ideas have found their way into the worship of the Christian church. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, centering around the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healing a leper and the faith of the centurion. Stay tuned. You can meet and hear Mark and Molly Hemingway, Robert George, Albert Moeller, Brian Wolfmiller, Hans Feeney, and Will Whedon at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 12th, and Saturday, June 13th in Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 12th and 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Do you know any military veterans in your church or community? Do you have a passion to support and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then Operation Barnabas is for you. Called by Christ's love, Operation Barnabas engages, empowers, and equips LCMS faith communities to provide hope, healing, and support to military-connected persons living in their community. Operation Barnabas is a program of LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Find out more at lcms.org slash armed forces. Epiphany Lutheran Church in Door, Michigan, gathers to receive our Lord's gifts in Word, Baptism, and Supper every Sunday morning at 9.15, Bible study at 11. Join us at 4219 Park Lane in Door, or visit us on the web, epiphanydoor.org. Christ-centered, cross-focused, historic, confessional, liturgical, Epiphany Lutheran Church in Door, Michigan, epiphanydoor.org, 616-681-0791. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. We Lutherans, we're never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, coordinator for stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. 
other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org stewardship, lcms.org stewardship. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary with our good friend, Pastor David Peterson of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's also departmental editor of God Estates, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. You can find out more about this Lutheran liturgical think tank under the Listen On Demand page at issuesetc.org. There are two phrases from this account that uh, have just found a perfect home in the rites of the church. One of them in, and many people might not even hear this one because it's often spoken quietly by the pastor at the altar when he receives the Lord's body and blood. And the other one, uh, people will hear in the perhaps the privacy of uh, private absolution. What are they? Well, the first one is that the traditional prayer before receiving the body of Christ, as the pastor brings it to you, is, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but say the word and my soul shall be healed. So an identification with, with this centurion. Uh, much in the way that our posture for prayer takes up the posture of the tax collector in the temple. And, uh, and it, it is, it is beautiful. Uh, and yet, of course, trusting that he will come under our roofs and do what he says. And then the other place uh, is in the rite of individual confession and absolution in the Lutheran service book on page 292. After the penitent confesses his sins and says, I'm sorry for all this and want to do better, the pastor says, God be merciful to you and strengthen your faith. And then the pastor asks, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? The penitent says yes. And then immediately before setting or as he's setting his hands on the penitent's head to speak the absolution, he says, let it be done for you as you believe, which is, of course, what Jesus says to the centurion as he as he sends him home. The uh, intro for this coming Sunday is Psalm 97, the heavens proclaim the righteousness of the Lord. Yep, it's uh, Psalm uh, 97, verse 6 is the antiphon, and then 1 and 2 for the body. And then 97, verse 1 is also going to be the Alleluia verse. So, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let many coastlands be glad in the ESV. Uh, so, I think the connection here with 97 to this to the epiphany in general and to this gospel in particular is again this connection to the Gentiles. That this of course is not in the New Testament, this is before the birth of Christ, and yet it's all the people, not just ethnic Jews, who see the Lord's glory and he is over all the earth, including again, obviously over the Gentiles. So in this verse one, it is uh, all people who are called, all the earth who are called to rejoice, and it is explicitly this coastlands, which means the pagan lands, uh, and the King James translated that as islands. We had a hymn like about going to the islands. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember quite how that goes, but neither can I. It's from this. <laughs> now the collect for the day, and this doesn't happen as often. The collect kind of could only go 
on this Sunday. It wouldn't right. fit any place else because it's specific to the gospel reading. What is it? That's right. It prays, Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. So it's a very explicit connection with this idea that Christ is our great and compassionate physician and that we have infirmities that are in need of his healing, and that's what we're asking him to do. The church has always allegorized the miracles to some degree. Uh, now, what I mean by that, we know allegory is kind of a bad word in the Lutheran church, but what I mean is that the church has always seen, particularly in Christ's healing miracles, more than simply Jesus enacting a physical restoration or having a bit of uh, sort of uh, social mercy on someone. We've always understood that the miracles are never arbitrary or accidental, as though Jesus just sometimes healed as an afterthought. But of course, healing is prophesied in the Old Testament as an explicit messianic characteristic. So in that sense, it's not optional. It is who Jesus is. He is the healer, the physician. And because of that, the miracles do have symbolic import and meaning that Christ the Creator has entered into his creation, which we broke and perverted, uh, the Franzman line, he breathes our poisoned air, right? He accepts cuts and scrapes from thorns. He endures viruses and disease. He's betrayed by men. I'll actually be surprised if when we get to heaven, we don't find out that while he was here on earth, he didn't get bit by a dog at some point, scratched by a cat, attacked by mosquitoes. And I mean, if he never had a shoe, get stuck in stinking, sucking mud or tripped over a rock and bumped his head, I'd really be surprised because the reality is, I mean, we don't know that any of that happened to him, but what we know is that he entered into this fallen world and that this fallen world is arrayed against him, even as it is against us, that he suffered everything that we suffer. And, and that means mosquitoes and dog bites and scratches and the like. Again, of course, I mean, I, I don't want to upset your listeners. I, I'm aware the Bible doesn't say anything about dogs biting Jesus. And I understand that he doesn't have to suffer every exact thing in the exact same way that we did that can be broader than that. But what we do know, and I think it's important that we confess and remember, is that Jesus endured the broken violence and the hatred of this dark place, that he came into enemy territory for us and endured that, and that his salvific purpose, that is to die for the sins of the world, is not distinct or in any way separate from his restoration of creation. It's a simultaneous reality, and his suffering is not limited just to the cross. Now, I'm given this big lecture here because Preachers do need to be careful that we don't preach this as though the miracles are parables. They're not allegories. They are actually historic events that happened, and they happened in response to real physical needs, and there were real physical restoration. At the same time, woe to the preacher who doesn't see that there's warfare here, and who doesn't see in the miracles a type of what Christ does to and for us today in word and sacrament. Pastor David Peterson's our guest. We'll take another break, attend more minutes with him on the other side of the break on this Wednesday, January the 18th, looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. Well, you couldn't tell this story of the leper being healed by Jesus without the Old Testament reading being the famous leprosy story of Naaman the Syrian. That's next.
you can compare what each gospel writer wrote about Jesus and his ministry in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January. It's titled, Jesus, A Study of the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Jesus, A Study on the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, costs fourteen ninety nine. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Jesus, A Study on the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study Jesus anointed by Mary. The triumphal entry, Jesus' response to the Greeks who wanted to see him. Jesus fulfills the prophets, and Jesus shines his light in our darkness. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at final stanza of the hymn, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? We're looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the one-year lectionary, Pastor David Peterson is our guest about another 10 minutes with him. Let's go to the Old Testament reading, which is a natural. I mean, you're not going to have this gospel reading without a similar, uh, although in some ways somewhat different, healing of a leper. That's right. We get the, the healing of Naaman, who comes to Elisha uh, to be healed of his leprosy because of his servant girl who tells him about Elisha. And of course, uh, this has uh, typically been understood by the church as being, the, the, that is, the, the healing of Naaman as being a type of baptism. Uh, because it does foreshow that the Lord uses water, as he typically does throughout the Old Testament, for more than simply physical cleaning. But probably the most interesting point here is, of course, when Naaman rejects the simple ceremony that's dictated by God through Elisha and demands his own ceremony. And you probably remember, he thinks there's a proper way to do this, and washing in the Jordan River certainly isn't it. He thinks that uh, Elisha should come out, should stand in front of him, should call upon the Lord and wave his hands. I guess that would be reasonable. 
Uh, so there, there is this kind of funny thing that this is typical of in our fallen flesh, and that is that we're always tempted to self-chosen forms of worship, and we're always tempted to sort of despise the simplicity of what God has given. Most of us have probably noticed this uh, in churches that don't have sacraments, like Baptists or, or whoever, that they will often substitute man-made ceremonies like an altar call instead of communion, or maybe a dedication ceremony for a baby instead of baptism. And I really think they're trying to replace what they've lost. Uh, but a similar thing also happens with ceremonies. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure that folding your hands and bowing your head and closing your eyes is the best of all ceremonies for prayer, and I certainly wouldn't want to compel anyone to do it. But we should recognize that that ceremony, which most of us were taught by our mothers, has the weight of tradition behind it. And, and what I mean is that the church has found this particular bodily expression of prayer to be helpful for a very long time. Of course, I, I could, in my freedom, make up a new way to pray. I could cross my legs and hold my arms straight out to the side to remind me of the cross of Jesus. I could look at the ceiling and open my eyes and help me think about heaven. And I mean, there's probably dozens of ways, and, and maybe that would be useful. But it smacks to me of a certain kind of arrogance that's reminiscent of Naaman here uh, to replace tradition in the realm of Adiaphora with a new ceremony just because it's Adiaphora. And our new ceremonies just haven't t stood the test of time. They haven't been vetted by the church. So I think there's at least kind of a, a bit of a lesson and warning we can take from Naaman in this. What does uh, the epistle reading, Romans chapter 12, have to do? Or is it simply kind of not a third wheel, but doing its own thing on this particular Sunday? Well, I can't. I mean, there probably is some profound person can figure it out. It does. I can't see a real direct, obvious relation to the gospel or to Epiphany even as a season. But it is an important passage, Romans twelve sixteen to, to 21. Uh, it admonishes us again, as St. Paul so often does, to holy living, to do what's honorable, to live peaceably with all. And it, and it calls us also to love our enemies, to be merciful to them. So it really does kind of establish the reality that the church doesn't fight fire with fire, but it fights with water. That is, that we don't overcome evil with evil, but with good. But the passage that I always am, so I find so important in here is this quotation from Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I just find this so liberating and comforting, because what does this mean? What it means is, the Lord can take care of vengeance, and I don't have to. We don't have to take care of things ourselves. The Lord sees the injustices that you endure, he sees the wrongs that are done to you, and he will take care of it. So it's not being ignored, and at the same time, it's not our burden. So I don't have to fix the United States or the Missouri Synod or even my neighbors. I don't, it's not that I'm going to ignore the people in need or ignore error, but I can, I really can sleep better at night trusting that God's in charge and it's his, not my job to police the world. He really will. And that's, that's a, just such a practical comfort yeah. for all of us, not just in terms of vengeance, uh, you know, I have to somehow repay, but um, that God is actually keeping track of our days and our hours and that he cares more about what's happening to us than we even care ourselves yep. and can do something about it that's right and so it's very liberating to leave it in his hands the hymn of the day um we don't want a paul gerhardt hymn to go uncommented <laughs> on and this one is kind of quintessential gerhardt why should cross and trial grieve me. Talk about it. Yeah, I think it is kind of the quintessential, or his, probably his most famous hymn at least. It, this hymn, I think, fits very well in this day 
for those of us who are so often frustrated that our leprosy and our cancer and so forth aren't being healed in a timely manner according to how men count timeliness. Here, it's really speaking from the perspective of the leper or the centurion before they got their miracle. And so Gerhardt starts out with this rhetorical question, why should cross and trial grieve me? Of course, the obvious answer would be because they're horrible and it hurts and you don't like it. But he says, Christ is near. With his cheer, never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's son for me won when his life was given? So his point is, of course, if eternal salvation is ours in Christ, if we've been reconciled to the Father, declared to be his own people, to be righteous, then what is temporary sorrow? He's not making light of it, but he wants to put it in perspective. And then he goes on, when life's troubles rise to me, though their weight may be great, they will not defeat me. So he acknowledges, this is, I think, extraordinary. We don't do this very much because we're afraid to. He acknowledges that God is behind his sorrows and that God has sent him these sorrows, these crosses, with a purpose. And then he says, God, my loving Savior, sends them. He who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. He gave them, he'll take care of them. He knows what he's doing. He's always good. Faith expects good things from God. Gerhardt continues, God gives me my days of gladness, and I will trust him still when he sends me sadness. So he doesn't explain away the sadness by talking about, well, God allows it to happen. Rather, Gerhardt courageously, I think, submits to God's will. He trusts that God really is in control and that he is moving for Gerhardt's good in ways that Gerhardt can't even imagine. And he reminds himself, hey, God also sends gladness, right? Even in the midst of the worst things in this world, even at Auschwitz, there are still people being kind to one another, helping one another. There are birds singing. It, there, there is gladness even in our darkest hours if we can learn to look and learn to be thankful. Again, this isn't to belittle sorrow, but it is to put things into context and to encourage people to look for good things. Then he says, God is good. His love attends me day by day. Come what may, guides me and defends me. And then from God's joy can nothing sever, for I am his dear lamb, he my shepherd ever. I am his because he gave me his own blood for my good by his death to save me. And then the last stanza in the Lutheran service book, stanza five, is the stanza that Gerhardt himself quoted on his deathbed and which is inscribed at his tomb. It reads, now in Christ, death cannot slay me, though it might day and night trouble and dismay me. Christ has made my death a portal from the strife of this life to his joy immortal. So there's a picture there in Gerhardt's hymn of something that is foreshadowed in the healing of the leper. Because as you said at the beginning, Jesus intends not, he wills to heal this leper there in time, but he has something far greater in store for this leper in eternity and in the resurrection. That joy, what does he call it? That joy immortal. Yeah, he's going, he's bringing, and he's going to heal all the lepers. He's going to heal all the cancer patients. He's going to bring all, his, all of his children at the right time to the right place, that is to himself. With about a minute here, I'm, I'm struck by how, uh, even though the circumstances of leprosy are far away from our uh, experience here in this life, how this event in this otherwise obscure man's life brings forward uh, what Christ has come to do in bringing his kingdom, that this is about the kingdom of God again. About a minute to talk about that. Well, that's it. This is the epiphany theme, that God wants all people, has given his life for all people, 
And it's our joy to proclaim this message to the world. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, Setting the Lord's Table, with Pastor Will Whedon. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part today by Concordia University, Wisconsin. They offer 50 online educational options for an associate's, bachelor's, or master's degree. You can find out more by clicking the Concordia University, Wisconsin online logo at issuesetc.org. And be sure to enter the promo code ISSUES, I-S-S-U-E-S. They'll waive your application fee. Lifelong Lutheran Learning, Concordia University, Wisconsin, online. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. And so long from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Hello, this is Pastor Kevin Golden of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village Lutheran are proud to be part of the Issues Etc. 300, sharing in their Christ-centered, cross-focused proclamation of the gospel. If you find yourself in St. Louis, join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.45 for the Divine Service, 9.30 for Bible study and Sunday school, as we receive Christ's gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Or visit us on the web at www.villagelutheranchurch.org.